0: Welcome to Question Period, I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, COVID consequences.
1: They've been inactive, they've been slow, they've been late. We
0: will continue to do our jobs. They are the ones playing politics. The opposition calls for a full review of the government's COVID-19 response, but the Liberals say it's a distraction. Is the government avoiding a look at mistakes made in the early days of the pandemic, or is the second wave really the time to look back when Canada needs rapid tests and a vaccine? The Health Minister, Patty Hydew joins us to respond, and then, boiling over...
2: We must be able to remain peaceful. The acts of violence we have seen in the past days and weeks are disgusting, unacceptable, racist in nature.
0: Are the government and the RCMP doing enough to stop the violence in Nova Scotia, or will the trouble at sea turn deadly? Chief Michael Sack and the Federal Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan join us on that and on calls for the RCMP Commissioner to step down over the events. Plus, a Trump whistleblower? He was told this was a serious virus that spread in the air and it was much worse than much worse than the flu. Donald Trump says the COVID crisis is turning the corner. So why did a senior member of his coronavirus task force resign at what she saw as dangerous negligence? Olivia Troy tells us why she left the White House and why she sees things getting worse. Plus, why are some airline passengers getting rapid tests when most Canadians are still waiting in hours-long lineups? CTV News infectious disease specialist Dr. Abdu Sharkawi joins the scrum. And so does CTV pollster Nick Nanos on the big election result in B.C. last night. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers.
1: The Liberals have repeatedly attempted to shut down the studies of the pandemic response. My colleagues on the Health Committee have been facing obstruction, delays, and manipulation in the midst of a
0: pandemic. What is the Liberal government so afraid of? So the second wave has arrived, just as doctors predicted months ago. But neither the federal government nor the provincial governments have the rapid test promised and available to deal with it or even have done to do enough contact tracing. Now, this past week, Alberta and the federal government started a pilot project to have international travellers landing in Calgary to get a faster test, not a rapid test, but that could cut down the required quarantine time from two weeks to seven days. But the costs of the lack of rapid tests are massive. On Friday, StatsCan released a report saying the border closures have cost the Canadian economy up to $37 billion and over 550,000 jobs in tourism and related industries. And in the midst of all this, the Conservatives, the NDP and the Bloc will support a motion to be voted on tomorrow that demands a wide ranging investigation into the government's COVID response. So why does the government say this isn't the time? This is all a distraction. Let's find out. Joining us now is the Health Minister, Patti Hajdu. Uh, Minister, great to have you on the program, and I hope you and the family are well. Let's start with the opposition. They want accountability on your government's th- response to the crisis. Everything from what you knew when about the virus, closing the borders, getting a rapid test. The government has spent hundreds of billions of dollars. What is wrong with accountability at a committee?
3: Nothing at all, Evan. In fact, we've been in front of uh, HESA committee, health committee uh, numerous times, Dr. Tam, myself, a variety of officials. We produce documents. We continue to do that, and we'll be there to do that uh, in an ongoing fashion. I think the concern that the government had with the original state of the motion was just the design of the motion itself, which compelled the government to hand over all documents over a number of different areas and portfolios within uh, 15 days which, as you can imagine, is volumes and volumes of material.
0: I know now the documents you get a month to produce them, not two weeks. Aaron O'Toole says we want to find out a little more detail. For example, he says that you, as a minister, over-relied on the WHO and what China was saying at the outset of the crisis and didn't respond in time. By the way, the U.S. intelligence has concluded that the Chinese misled the world in the early stages. The Australians have said, in retrospect, now, because you had defended the WHO... Did China mislead the world on the, in the early stages of this pandemic and therefore mislead Canada?
3: Look, I think there's no question that there have been many opportunities for all countries to be more transparent about what's happening, and those things will unfold in a review. China should have a review of how they conducted themselves during the pandemic. The World Health Organization has committed to a review of how they have responded to the coronavirus. Canada has been a voice asking for that. I have spoken with Dr. Tedros myself and and, uh, indicated that Canada is very very interested in participating in that eventual review of the World Health, or World Health Organization, but I'll also say this: Canada will have to do a review of our own response, and in fact, I think all countries will.
0: This started in China, and you know, there's a producer on our program asked you whether you can trust the WHO if China is providing false information, and you had dismissed that as conspiratorial in nature. Uh, do you still believe, considering what our allies' intelligence is showing? Uh, That Those are conspiracies or, again, because it's important. The WHO can only do what the information, act on the information they're getting. And if China wasn't honest, that has a massive, not only uh, economic uh, impact, but lives are lost because of that.
3: If China wasn't honest, then they uh, need to be held to account. But I can tell you this. uh, The World Health Organization, although flawed, I will repeat, is an important organization in combating global pandemics. And we need to have global cooperation. Uh, So I will say this again. Canada has asked the World Health Organization to conduct a review of how they've responded to COVID-19 and the pandemic. And we will be doing our own review as a country as well. And those things are going to be important for leaders of the future to deal with uh, novel pathogens as they arise.
0: Canada had this world-class monitoring system that might have Uh, using open source information, detected the viral outbreak before it was made official. You and I have spoken about this, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network. You were on this program saying when you became the Minister of Health, you hadn't even heard of it, but you were going to investigate why it was dismantled. It could have recalibrated Canada's response. Since then, have you found out why someone in your government dismantled it? Who was responsible? And if your government will reinvest in this program quickly to get it restarted?
3: So uh, first part of that, yes, the, the Global Public Health Information Network was reoriented. Uh, it was a, a a bureaucratic decision. And uh, when I found out that that decision had been taken, that's when I ordered an external review that will be launched very shortly. And yes, absolutely, Canada will be investing in every tool possible to protect us from uh, the threat of, of pathogens, uh, novel pathogens across the world. It's really, really important that we uphold the voices of scientists and i think when i heard reports that scientists felt their voices were not being taken seriously within the public health agency of canada that was a very very distressing thing okay. for me and certainly we've rectified that but in the interim but who's accountable
0: um, i just I, I mean and you say you've rectified it there's still we still don't have it back up and running is there anybody accountable like who was accountable for dismantling something that could have been absolutely critical
3: Well, listen, uh, as you know, the Public Health Agency of Canada has a new president. He is well aware of the need to uh, reinstate the Global Public Health Information Network. They are now back in operation and the review will be uh, uncovering all those kinds of answers about how that decision came to be and why uh, why it is that it happened.
0: The federal government has given the provinces billions of dollars to increase funding for their health services, start the economy. But you still see Canadians standing in long lines waiting for tests or waiting for appointments. You still see people waiting days and days, in some cases weeks, to get their results back as cases are surging. And this is having a a critical impact. Why hasn't the federal government used its thumb and stuck it on the scale and called out provinces more to do more on rapid testing or got those rapid tests more quickly? It, It seems that we're way behind on that.
3: Well, I think, you know, countries all around the world are, uh, you know, actively seeking new tools, including rapid testing as a solution to help understand where COVID-19 is in their communities and then track and trace uh, the disease. But listen, testing is only one component. It has to be followed up with contact tracing and then isolation of close contacts. Otherwise, it's just a diagnostic
0: tool. I get that. But the ball was dropped didn't have enough reagents for, for labs or Ontario shipping them to California. You talk about contact tracing. Toronto's not even doing that anymore because they don't have the resources to do that. Somebody dropped the ball. You know, Canadians are just wondering who's accountable. You say you, you put the money to the provinces. If the provinces are accountable, why didn't you call them out more?
3: Well, I think we have, to be fair, Evan, talked about challenges in Ontario's testing strategy, for example, which is now reoriented to follow national guidance. I think we have actually pushed provinces and territories to follow the evidence and the research and the science. And listen, I'll remind you that uh, provincial uh, jurisdiction is in control of direct health care delivery. So at the end of the day, uh, the federal government is there to support with resources, with tools, with technology, with guidance, and even with additional supports
0: of people. I just want to talk about this this testing going on in Calgary, Minister. If tests are scarce, as we've talked about that, I know there's going to be more rapid tests arriving, but they're clearly pretty scarce. Why allocate some of these tests to airports, to test people who have willingly left the country and, and are coming back, as opposed to allocating them where they may more be needed. Parents who have been stuck at home for months in cities. What is the ethical decision to allocate tests to an airport as opposed to other places?
3: The tests that uh, the, the study is actually going to prove, uh, hopefully, give us more evidence and, and more decision-making power around what is the length uh, appropriate for quarantine? Can we reduce the quarantine using a combination of testing and, and, uh, and an isolation or quarantine? Uh, how do we manage the borders
0: going forward? You saw the debate on Thursday night last week with Donald Trump, and he said we're rounding the corner and a vaccine is weeks away, he said. Can you give Canadians a timeline? How close are we to getting any vaccine? Are we, quote, rounding the corner? How how does his view of it compared to your view?
3: There's a lot of optimism because of course, uh, in Canada, we have three of uh, the six vaccines that we've procured uh, that have submitted to Health Canada for what's called a rolling approval, meaning that they'll submit evidence as it's gathered so that we can approve as quickly as possible the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And that's exciting. But I, I'm hesitant to put a date on it because in fact, this is really in the domain of science and research. And what I want Canadians to know is that Health Canada will ensure that that whatever vaccine is approved is safe for use in canada and is working as quickly as possible to assess the evidence as it comes in all
0: right i, I gotta leave it there i really appreciate your time minister thank you so much
3: thank you very much evan all right it's that's the minister day.
0: of health uh, patty haidu coming up on the program does the opposition have a point in asking for the government's response to the pandemic over the last eight months or are they just playing politics we're talking about what is needed most right now. We're going to have an early edition of the Scrum, and our special guest will be CTV News infectious disease specialist Dr. Abdul Sharqawi. Stay right here with Question Period.
1: We've moved forward in partnership with provinces on delivering rapid tests, and uh, we'll work with them to develop, uh, as they develop, uh, the strategies for actually rolling out those tests to maximum
2: impact in the community.
0: So big news on the testing front. A controversial pilot project between the federal and provincial government will start tests next month at the Calgary International Airport. They're hoping to cut the two-week quarantine time down by half. But why are these scarce number of tests being used as an airport and not being distributed, say, to families all over the country? Can the tests be trusted? And as cases are spiking in... Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, even in much-admired BC, should the federal government have put more pressure on the provinces to get more tests? Talk about that and lots more. The Scrum is here. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief, of course, for CTV News. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter for the Canadian Press. And our special guest for this round is CTV News Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Abdu Sharqawi. Good to see all of you. Steph, let me just start with this pilot project in Alberta. Um, you know stats can release numbers that the tourist industry is getting hurt 37 billion dollars we appreciate that still is this the best place to use these scarce tests
4: the question has to be this what's the point of the pilot project because realistically the border restrictions are very much still in place it's not like busloads of tourists from someplace else are suddenly flying into Calgary to go skiing at Banff for the weekend these are folks that are currently exempt from the border restrictions, they're coming to reunite with family, they're essential workers. So let's go back to what they're trying to do. Are they trying to find a way to allow the border to reopen slowly in the long term, accepting that the coronavirus is going to be with us a very, very long time? If that's the point of this, to have some made in Canada research about whether this kind of system would work, testing at the airports, it has to be followed up by contact tracing. You have to make sure people are actually abiding by the quarantine, that they're going for their second test. They're doing that with a super controlled population and while the cases are spiking globally, they're spiking here at home, we do have to start looking forward to what kind of solutions we might be able to put in place to get things back in the long term.
0: Doc, uh, l- let me just go to you. Uh, th- this, is gonna, this is an interesting thing. It will raise questions, how effective are these tests? I mean, they're not rapid tests. They still take 24, or 48 hours. And then how do you check up on people over, over the week here? What are your concerns about this program?
5: Well, it's certainly not foolproof. We know that people can still exhibit, uh, you know, potential signs of an infection up to two weeks and sometimes a little longer after their initial exposure. So, you know, the fact is, you're getting two tests that are being done within seven days, and assuming people remain asymptomatic, we're taking that as enough evidence to suggest they no longer need to remain in a self-isolation mode it's not perfect Uh, i think it's intriguing in terms of being able to allow greater freedom and flexibility and maybe if nothing else to give people a sense that uh, maybe they can travel a little bit more frequently than they might have knowing that they don't have to necessarily spend a full two weeks in isolation when they're returning from travel abroad. Uh, But I agree. I think that there are certainly other testing grounds that would probably be a more fertile opportunity uh, to determine a level of need uh, for tests that are already uh, rather scarce uh, by the conventional system.
0: Yeah, and and let's talk about that, Steph, uh, the scarcity issue, because again, a lot of folks thought we'd have rapid tests, faster than the ones we're talking about, earlier, and certainly more of them, so we wouldn't have to say, okay, long-term care homes, get them. Uh, The Conservatives, and now supported by the NDP and the Bloc, will be voting on a motion to actually start a deep-dive review uh, and investigate the crisis and how the government's handled it so far. The Liberals have called it a distraction. What do you make of the request? Is it the right thing to do and the government's response?
4: The question is Can it be really truly done in a nonpartisan way, like the opposition says it wants to do? Because I think there are absolutely valid questions to be asked about the government's response. There are valid questions to be asked about what they were directing Public Health Agency of Canada to do, the management of scientists within that department, the bureaucrats within that department, the regulatory processes around rapid testing. These are all very, very valuable questions. But as we've been seeing in recent weeks in the Commons, the idea of putting partisanship aside, that, that cross partisan unity we saw in the early days of the pandemic that really seems to be falling by the wayside and if this is just another one of those opposition motions that's designed to give the government a black eye as opposed to achieve real results for Canadians then no maybe it's not the right thing and maybe this is the time for the government as a for example to set up some kind of Commission to start getting the ball rolling take all those documents the committee wants and hand it over to somebody who's not partisan and can start really looking at this objectively because as we keep saying on this show and elsewhere we're in this for the long haul and it's going to take a really long Long time and it's time to know are we prepared for this second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave, and also what did we do the last time? But if I might close on one point, we have, we have commissions into pandemics. We did one into SARS and what a lot of people are saying is nobody listened to the results of that either. So at the end of the day, Again, I guess it's kind of like pilot projects for testing. What's the point? What is the ultimate objective that is trying to be achieved here? Is it sound research and policy, or is it just more partisan bickering?
0: Well, what key questions, Joyce, are there? I mean, I just talked to the health minister, and you've talked to the health minister as well. I mean, what needs to be investigated right now
6: in the midst of a pandemic? Well, see, that's the problem with the, with the uh, motion from the Conservatives. Um, it's a little bit like the motion they had on we charity which is you know indirectly linked also to the pandemic it's so broad what do you want to know uh, what questions do you have can you be a little bit more specific or do you just want them to bury you in documents and give as as stephanie says the government a black eye and i think that nonpartisan does not exist anymore uh, we've seen that in the past week, we've seen that in fact in the past couple of weeks. All this the goodwill that was built at the beginning of the pandemic is not there anymore and should still be there um, because they were bickering, I mean the, the last motion almost caused an election and if that had happened, whole, so many bills that were on the table, aid bills, wage subsidy, rent subsidy would have fallen by the wayside so that is not collaboration that means that the big losers would have been not only the canadian voters but all those millions of canadians that would have needed their help yeah and doc you know of course
0: there's this balance between the pandemic is never a substitute for democracy but you gotta as you say have a plan here but just look you're at the sharp end of the stick uh is this the time to look back i mean are there some mistakes that we need to understand because as steph said we're in this for the long haul Uh, what do we need to know to avoid mistakes going forward
5: Well I I think there's some pretty glaring uh, you know omissions in terms of our preparedness for the second wave and I would agree that time is not on our side in terms of you know uh, putting together a commission that's going to go through things with a fine-tooth comb you know I think the time for that is it's further on down the road but let's focus on the priorities right now in terms of testing and contact tracing uh, which certainly have been compromised and and are really receiving a failing grade at this point in Ontario and Quebec our two most populous provinces Uh, there has to be some attention uh, put on uh, delivering Mm -hmm. some tests that are more accessible uh, to people uh, you know in in a broader range of settings uh, where they are needed whether we're talking about schools and long-term care facilities or meat packing plants and other uh, areas where we've seen outbreaks and we know that those outbreaks are likely to recur, uh, we need a, an infrastructure that's going to support contact tracing uh, in a way that's going to make it a viable mechanism uh, to manage the extent of the disease. And it's essentially non existent right now in Ontario and much of Quebec.
0: All right, Now you keep your boots on the ground in the OR. We always thank for you for your work, Dr. Sharkawi. Uh, thanks to you and thanks to Joyce. Steph is going to stay around a little later to talk about the B.C. election results. Interesting, the first, or not the first, but one of the pandemic elections. But coming up next, Donald Trump's COVID whistleblower. Why did a senior advisor to the White House's coronavirus task force resign, saying the U.S. government had totally botched it? And what does she think now of the president's claim that the U.S. is turning the corner? The former intelligence officer and White House COVID advisor, Olivia Troy, speaks out to us next. Stay right here with Question Period.
2: It will go away. And as I say, we're rounding the turn. We're rounding the corner. It's going away.
0: He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. So with just over a week to go before Americans head to the polls, the ballot box question is still one thing, the pandemic. Donald Trump is still defending his record on COVID, despite the fact that over 220,000 Americans have died from the virus and cases are still spiking across that country. Donald Trump's Vice President, Mike Pence, is in charge of the U.S. response under something called the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And one of the key members of that task force was Olivia Troy. Troy, a lifelong Republican, worked in the Pentagon and at the Department of Homeland Security as a senior intelligence official and then as the counterterrorism and homeland security advisor to Mike Pence in the White House. That was when she was recruited to the coronavirus task force. She was involved in every level of the US response at the beginnings, meeting with the president, meeting with Dr. Fauci, but by July she'd resigned, saying the administration had completely failed in its response. Does she believe the president's claim that the u.s is now rounding the curve let's find out joining us now is olivia troy first of all great to have you on the program you spent eight months on the white house coronavirus task force when exactly did you become disillusioned with the work it was doing was there a defining moment
7: you know it, it was sort of a cumulative buildup of a number of things that i had seen throughout my tenure both you know, as the vice president's Homeland Security advisor, and then specifically more on the COVID, on the White House COVID task force. And I think as the election got closer, it became clear to me that I was not able, gonna be able to overcome the political dynamics and the environment in the White House on, you know, on, on helping on this topic.
0: Olivia, The world watched Bob Woodward and they heard that the recording, actually Bob Woodward was on this program last weekend, um, talking about that tape recording uh, early uh, February when Donald Trump said, you know, I know that this is much deadlier than the flu, but I'm, quote, downplaying the virus, the severity of it. Uh, Take us inside. Could you see then as part of the task force that they were, quote, downplaying the severity of the virus?
7: Yeah, so what I will say is that I saw the task force members and the doctors and the experts such as Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, Dr. Redfield, they were all taking this pandemic very seriously and we knew early on that this was an unknown. There were a lot of unknowns about the virus. The virus was very unpredictable, but we knew that the rate of the spread of the virus as we were watching it in Wuhan was extremely dangerous. And the president was told very early on that this this virus would be worse than the flu. He asked that question in one of the task force meetings. He specifically said, is this worse than the flu? He was told, yes, it absolutely is. It spreads a lot faster and it can be deadlier from what we're seeing. And so he, he was hearing us, he was hearing the task force experts talk about it. He was warned.
0: Okay, so he says, uh 2.2 million people could have died. Was that a number that uh, you inside the White House were talking about? And what was, if the, if the pandemic had been handled differently, in your view, what were the numbers that, that, that you were originally talking about? Uh, the, and again, we talk about numbers. These are people's lives. I want people to, I don't want to dismiss this as statistics. But uh, what were the kind of fatalities, mortality rates you were thinking about if it had been handled differently?
7: Well, we certainly hope to keep the numbers, hopefully be below you know 100,000, which is still too many, but the numbers that he's talking about, yes, those were projections that were being said at the very beginning. If nothing, if absolutely nothing was done to stop it, this is what the doctors were saying. They were warning that we could be facing, I mean, we are facing the worst pandemic of our generation right now, and that this wasn't going away. And so I think in terms of the numbers on where we are today, you know, I'm not a medical practitioner, so I'm not a scientist, but I can tell you that right now, we were hoping that we'd, we would be at 10,000 or less daily cases, new cases, and we are nowhere near that. We're upwards of 50,000 and climbing.
0: Olivia, from the Canadian perspective, we are also in the mix of a great debate about doing an analysis of the, of the response. Every country is doing this. And whether Canada trusted the information coming from the WHO and if the WHO relied too much on info coming out of the Chinese government in Wuhan. Um, again... You're someone who worked in intelligence, uh, homeland security and on the task force. Were the Chinese lying to the WHO and passing on faulty information at the beginning of this crisis that other countries, potentially like Canada, were relying on?
7: We do know, I can tell you that in some of the task force meetings, we discussed the fact that they were being a lot more transparent than in times in the past. But. At the end of the day it's china and it's hard to trust what they're telling people and saying for the u.s you know we were denied access on the ground in wuhan for weeks we requested it the cdc asked repeatedly to have a team go in there to help them and be on the ground next to them so they could study the virus and figure out what was going on it took weeks of asking and requests for us to be able to gain access and i'm sure other countries were probably in the same situation
0: was it dangerous? Was it the wrong thing to do for the president to undermine the credibility of the WHO coordinating a global response to this pandemic?
7: You know, I think it was because we're all in this fight together. This virus is global. It's, it's, it's impacting all of us, right? Globally, not everyone is effect, being affected by this virus. And I think at a time when we're in the middle of a crisis, that's really the last thing that we should be doing. We should not be picking fights with each other. We should really be unifying and trying to work with our allies and other countries to figure out how we approach this pandemic so that we can, you know, overcome it.
0: Last question. You're a lifelong Republican. Uh, Doesn't sound like you're voting for Donald Trump. I think I've heard you're voting for for Joe Biden. Um, What should Joe Biden, if Joe Biden wins, what do you think he should do or will do differently?
7: Well, that is true, I support Joe Biden. I, I think that what Joe Biden will do that this president is incapable of is understand the importance and the respect that the Oval Office uh, deserves and he will be presidential about it. And I think that he will be a unifying voice for our country and, you know, specifically on the pandemic, I think that Joe Biden understands that it is important to communicate the facts and the science and behave in a manner that exhibits leadership during a crisis, which is what we've been lacking this entire pandemic response. And it is costing us, you know, lives. It's costing jobs, it's hurting our economy.
0: All right, I gotta leave it there. Olivia Troy, I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, coming up next on our program, Boiling Over. The lobster dispute in Nova Scotia is still threatening to explode into violence, but why has it taken the federal government so long to act? The Oceans and Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan and Chief Mike Sack join us next. Stay right here with question period.
2: Once again, as evidenced by the scenes of violence, Indigenous people have been let down by the police, those who are sworn to protect them.
4: I have full confidence in the highly trained officers on the ground. They're well trained to de-escalate, they're well trained in crisis intervention, and I have full confidence in the command structure and the management structure.
0: So even the federal government says the RCMP failed to protect the Mi'kmaq fishers, but the RCMP commissioner, as you just saw, Brenda Lucky, stands by the force's response to the violent clashes led by commercial fishers against indigenous ones in Nova Scotia. The conflict, of course, revolves around the right of the Mi'kmaq to make a moderate livelihood from lobster fishing, which is a right upheld and protected by the 1999 Supreme Court Marshall decision. Why hasn't the federal government stepped in sooner to prevent this fishing dispute from boiling over? And what's being done now? Let's start two parts of this. First, we're joined from Nova Scotia by the... Subaganakadi Chief Mike Sack, were you reassured, what do you make of Commissioner Lucky's uh, defense of the actions of the RCMP, that they did their job the whole time?
2: Yeah, no, I I don't like to talk bad about anyone, but I think that they should have fessed up at the beginning there that they slipped up, and uh, a lot has happened because of that, and it's unfortunate, but hopefully it won't happen in the future for anyone. Chief, I've seen video of Department
0: of Fisheries and Oceans boats pulling over Mi'kmaq fishers. do your fishers feel like they're they're checking up too much on them or harassing them or is that normal, par for the course, they're just doing their jobs?
2: No, I believe there is um, systemic racism in that as well. You know, they're checking our people every day um, when they're out there, you know, and we've asked for protection on them for a while. You know, last week we asked that they be in the area just to make sure our people are safe. And DFO boats show up in, uh, in Cape Breton Hall and Big Maw Traps down there. So, you know, where are their priorities. Um there needs to be more more enforcement on the water, and to ensure that our our right is upheld, and, and to protect our people, and to protect everyone involved.
0: You're saying that the fact that they're they're checking up on Migma fishers, and they're not giving enough protection, is, is an example of systemic racism. Like you're seeing it right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's very unfortunate, and I know the uh, we're working along great with Minister Jordan, and I, I got no complaints on that area at all. It's the um, the lower levels, I guess, you know. We asked the RCMP for help, uh, they put it on DFO, we asked DFO, they put it on RCMP. So that's where, uh, that's where we go to the people and um, protect ourselves if we have to, but we're hoping that uh, you know, just everything stays calm due to the injunction.
0: One of the keys here is to, for the federal government, after 21 years, to define what a moderate livelihood is. That's the term that was used in the Marshall decision. Um, how fast, do you think that has to happen quickly and how fast could that happen?
2: Yeah, that can happen uh, you know, fairly quickly. That's what we're working on. You know, We have a phased approach here to our plan, and we're looking at like a three or five years to completely define it. But uh, we'll define that. We're not looking for the, the government to define that at all. You don't think the government
0: has a role at all in defining what uh, constitutes a moderate livelihood?
2: They had 21 years to try and do that, but here we are. Now we're, uh, we're ex- exercising our Section 35 and the Constitutional right to you know, self-govern ourselves, and that's what we'll do.
0: Chief, you know, the Supreme Court after uh, said that it also has to be calibrated, a moderate livelihood, with conservation. The commercial fishers are saying, hey, you got to have conservation of the lobster. So we also have a voice here, and the federal government has a voice in that. What's your response to that?
2: Yeah, and I've said that many times. You know, the the fisheries that is happening now in the area does not have the Mi'kmaq approval. So they're fishing unlawfully themselves. And uh, if we were to take that action to court, we'll see how that would go.
0: Are you thinking of taking the commercial fishers to court?
2: 100 percent. You know they're, they're acting like they're entitled to this fishery, and they're there with their privilege to be there. You know, so their fishery was not approved by our people, and uh, you know we're the people of the land. We we're here, and uh, they should be careful of um, how they proceed attacking us.
0: All right, uh, we'll be watching this closely, Chief. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thank you. Okay, now let's get the government response to that. And we should also tell you that the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, has now called for the RCMP Commissioner, Brenda Lucky to resign after her comments over this dispute. So let's get the reaction from the Fisheries Minister, Bernadette Jordan. Minister, great to see you. Hope you and the family are well. We just spoke to Chief Sack. Um, he was very unimpressed with what the commission of the RCMP said defending her actions. Uh, and now you've got the national chief calling for her uh, to resign. Why does the government say the RCMP failed? The RCMP said they do their job.
8: Why, is there, why are you on two different pages here? I've spoken directly to Chief Sack a number of times. He's very concerned about the safety of his people uh, down in southwest Nova Scotia. We've seen the, the horrific acts of violence, of intimidation, of threats, of, of vandalism. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely happy to see that people have been arrested for those actions and I, I guess you know we know that systemic uh, racism exists in all of our institutions right across the country and we need to do better we need to do more um, and we need to make sure that people stay s- are protected and and by the institutions that are there to protect them. Chief Sack just on the program had asked for more Department of Fisheries and Ocean boats,
0: DFO Boats, they arrived. Now he's saying they're actually stopping Mi'kmaq fishers. He just called this an example of systemic racism. They're seizing lobster
8: traps from the Mi'kmaq.
0: They asked to be protected. They say they're getting harassed. Why is that happening?
8: Uh, I, I know that the DFO, you know, DFO conservation officers... are are on the scene i know that the the coast guard has also been deployed to the area as well as rcmp uh, vessels in the area as well to make sure that people stay safe that is the number one priority that is what we are asking of uh, of people is to make sure that people are safe
0: chief sack also said that he's thinking of suing taking their commercial fishers to court he said you know what they're mad they think that we're violating the law by doing a moderate livelihood. We think they are illegally fishing on Mi'kmaq grounds, and he just told me they're thinking of taking them to court. What's the government's view on that? Are commercial fishers legally fishing there, or do they need Mi'kmaq permission?
8: Well, I, I you know, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see us going back to court. I think that that's one of the reasons that we've been in active negotiations with, uh, you know, with Sabaganagati, with Chief Sack, with the First Nations in Nova Scotia, to make sure that we, we come to a place where they're able to implement the, uh, the Marshall decision—that's 21 years in the making. It's—it's it's been a long time. Uh, there has been incremental, there has been incremental progress made over the vast number of years with regards to the implementation of the moderate livelihood right, But we know that more needs to be done, and that's when—and I—and I strongly believe that the best way forward right. for us is at the negotiation table. The Mi'kmaq are saying we're going to define this ourselves. Thank you very much. What do you make of that? It's not up to the federal government to define a moderate livelihood. The last thing First Nations want is is another top-down approach. It's extremely important that, you know, that the Mi'kmaq define what a, a moderate livelihood is. One of the challenges, of course, is it's, it's not something you can put a number on because it may be different from community to community.
0: But from the commercial fisher's point of view, they're saying, look, First Nations fishing is allowed under the Marshall decision okay but after the marshall decision there was another element to the decision which said it's got to be viewed within the lens of conservation and preservation that has to help define it do they have a role in defining that and that of course must be where the federal government weighs
8: in and i will say that conservation has to be the underpinning uh issue that that drives all of my decisions that that make sure that that we have a long-term sustainable fishery for years to come. That that has to be the number one priority. I will say that is the number one priority for First Nations. It's also the number one priority for, for the commercial harvesters. We're all on the same page on that. Everybody wants to see the resource uh, protected. Everyone wants to see the resource for the long-term. All right, Mr. Jordan, I really appreciate your time. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you. All right, coming up next on the brink, did the election gamble in BC pay off for the NDP there? As British Columbians voted last night, Saskatchewan heads to the polls tomorrow. Does the rest of Canada have an appetite for a federal election? Well, after a confidence vote Wednesday nearly triggered one, are parties getting ready with their yard signs? The Scrum returns with CTV pollster Nick Nanos to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. B.C. has voted and a majority has been called, but there are many, many hundreds of thousands of votes yet to be counted. And while we wait for that final count to happen, I want to assure people that I'm going to keep the focus right where it belongs on helping people get through this pandemic. Horgan makes history. Calling an election mid-pandemic was risky and the opposition called it opportunistic. But the B.C. NDP Premier John Horgan has pulled off a huge majority, beating out Andrew Wilkinson and the B.C. Liberals. In the last election, those parties were tied at 41 seats each, with three for the Greens. They were holding the balance of power. But as of this morning, and there are still more than half a million ballots that still need to be counted, big mail-in story there. So there's no final seat count, but the B.C. NDP look like they've got 55 seats, the Liberals 29 seats, and the Greens have three again, although they gained in a critical area. So Horgan is the first B.C. NDP Premier to win back-to-back mandates. What's the big takeaway from this campaign for the federal parties who are watching and, who, by the way, who almost went to the polls themselves last week? And with the Saskatchewan vote tomorrow, are incumbents in Canada set to keep winning, what issues are top of mind? Let's bring bring back the scrum. Now, Steph Levitz is back, uh, joining her as well, as our special guest is CTV News pollster Nick Nanos. Uh, Let me just start with you going (laughs) over this. what what's the big story coming out of BC and John Horgan's big win
1: well you know the big story is that election fever has paid off in terms of the pandemic for uh, for the BC New Democrats you know he came in it looks like popular supports at around 45 percent the Liberals are back at 36 so that's a pretty comfortable win for for him it also says that talking about the pandemic and running and trying to defend your record on the pandemic looks like good politics. It looks like it's, it was good politics in New Brunswick provincially, looks like it might be that in Saskatchewan, now British Columbia.
0: Yeah, Steph, your big takeaway here, and it's fascinating to watch this, and look, uh, Horrigan obviously has handled the pandemic well, but he did have uh, the Dr. Bonnie Henry, and that, the Bonnie Henry effect. Has been massive out there. What do you, what's your big takeaway in B.C.? I
4: mean, there's a couple of things to think about, right? One is that this notion that people punish for democracy—that the angry voters will reward opposition parties with votes simply because the government had the chutzpah to call an election—I mean, I think there's a fallacy there for sure. People might be annoyed, but at the end of the day, democracy wins, and that's always a good thing. And the second thing is to what Nick alluded to: people want to focus on the pandemic and recovery solutions from it. And when there are things like the Liberals were presenting in B.C., good is to some extent about cutting taxes i mean that's obviously almost always a vote getter it just it, wilkinson couldn't get the air for that it was people want to talk about pandemic response they wanted to talk about the issues that were affecting them right this very minute which is daycare access to jobs and that's where the ndp messaging was and that's where they won the day
0: yeah nick talk about that because the issues are fascinating and for those who are not or outside of bc you know the bc liberals function more centrally like conservatives federally i think is a, closer parallel what does it tell you about these how these issues have played out nick
1: well you know the thing is is this was bad news for the provincial liberals and you know i think the the lesson is is that you know what people want to hear about is the pandemic and what it means in terms of their physical health their mental health also the economic health of uh, of of canadians you know the other key takeaway in this was the green party they came in it looks like they came in at around 15 percent support in british columbia That's a good level of support. I think if you're the new federal Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, you're probably looking at this and trying to see how you can build on this in order to kind of expand the green tent and do even better in British Columbia because British Columbia is ground zero for the Greens. If they don't do well in British Columbia federally, it's gonna be hard for them to do well in other parts of the country.
0: Staff, if you're the federal parties watching this, if you're the Conservatives, the NDP and the Liberals and the Greens who Nick just talked about, what's their takeaways?
4: I mean, okay, well, we'll start with the federal Conservatives because as you point out, Evan the Liberals in British Columbia sort of mirror them more closely than any other party and part of the takeaway for sure for Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has to be again if you're trying to get out there and gain public purchase on anything other than the pandemic tread with caution people are not listening to you. So you can make as much hay as you want out of scandals like the we scandal but you know broaden that approach go and have a look at pandemic response like this health committee motion they're really focusing on tomorrow perhaps there's more uh, political purchase to be gained out of that i think if you're um, the Federal New Democrats, I mean, again, it's it's an interesting relationship between the Provincial New Democrats, the Federal New Democrats. But there, you're looking at some of the places where the Provincial NDP picked up seats and took them away from the Liberals. And is there more room for growth for the Federal NDP now mirroring a similar message to what the, their Provincial cousins are going with?
0: Uh, Nick, what about you? If you're the Federal parties, what are you watching you know, you know, for? Do you know what? This this week, Evan, was a
1: pathetic piece of of political drama I think that's how a lot of Canadians would feel you know the pandemics in a second spike the economy's in the can and we have politicians the Liberals the Conservatives the New Democrats everyone bickering over the name of a committee on an issue that the vast majority of Canadians although they'd like to see an inquiry and a look into that it's just not as important as what their state of Canadians health is and the state of the economy and uh, I think uh, what we're, what they sh- there should be a big wake-up call for federal mm-hmm. politicians in terms of shaking off some of these secondary issues and focusing on what's really important to Canadians.
0: The other big issue, Steph. I mail think also, I mean,
4: back- if I could go, go ahead, Steph. No, no, I was just going to say, it's also a question about min- minority versus majority mandates, right? Because in the provincial elections we've seen recently, Saskatchewan accepted, which again is tomorrow, you've had minority governments um, run pandemic elections and get rewarded with majorities. And what that's telling us is that the voting public wants stability. They want continuity. In the case of the federal Liberals, they've obviously tried to go to the polls a couple of times in recent weeks. Seriously, not seriously, we don't know. But I think there's um, a message there from the voters, which is to say that we want stability. We don't want these political games. Get on with it, manage the country, manage us through this pandemic, and put the politics aside to the best of your ability. Nick,
0: uh, i got the other is mail-in ballots, massive num- record numbers of mail-in ballots in B.C., record mail-in ballots coming up in Saskatchewan, and of course we're all looking at the United States where that has become a hotly politicized issue. What message are, are you getting from the mail-in ballots? It's going to delay the count for days and days, even in B.C. What does that tell you?
1: Well, it's going to delay the count, but I think the fact of the matter is, is that this is going to be the new normal. You know, whenever there's any kind of health threat or pandemic, we're probably, and there are elections, we're going to rely on that. The big question, Evan, is, can our democracies in Canada and in the pro- in these provincial elections deliver a stable result that is not controversial? Because that will take away kind of, that'll cut out uh, that'll cut out the legs for people that are kind of nervous Nellies who say we can't have an election during a pandemic, if a number of provinces can have elections. They can have results that everybody agrees on. But I think mail-in is going to be the new normal. It also means that on election night, we might have to be a little more patient in terms of when Canadians find the results of whether it's a provincial election or an even potential federal election. It might take days for that to settle out.
0: All right, guys, I got to leave it there. But a fascinating result, of course, in BC. Steph Levitz, Nick Nanos, great to have you here. Uh, Nick, nice background, no coat on and pretty chilly. That shows you that he's into it. We'll keep our eye on Saskatchewan (laughs) as that province heads to the polls tomorrow. That's our show for this week. Thanks for watching. Hug your loved ones. I'll see you on Power Play tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on News Channel. And we'll be back in seven days.